Uh, join me in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. Um, as you're turning there, uh, I want to reiterate, um, obviously, we have a men's prayer breakfast this Saturday. Men, hope you'll be there. Any of you listening online right now, uh, be at the Student Center, 8 o'clock. Looking forward to that. Uh, ladies, as was mentioned, uh, we thought we were going to have a little tight window for you after a meeting next week um, of church members to rush and eat and then hurry back at 2.30. But uh, we will not have to, you will not have to rush so much to get back at 2.30. And ladies, you'll meet right here. And please listen. Lots of prayer and, and work has been put into this. Going to be some new things uh, that are being put before you. And you're going to want to be here to see what that is. And it's multiple ladies have been involved in putting together what we feel like the Lord would have uh, for our women's ministry next week. So that's here at 2.30. Uh, you'll have time to go get lunch and come back. And then I also want to reiterate, at that table right back there, and there's one over behind the sound booth, so you'll need to go that direction. Now, Brandon hates paper. I understand that. But I like paper, right? I'm, I'm still old school here. I got all the new pastors these days. You just see them scrolling, and that is wonderful and fine. I still use my old-fashioned paper, fill my little handwritten notes all around the paper. It's a jumbled mess. Nobody would be able to make sense of it but me, hopefully. But... If you are still old school and you're like, I still go by a daily reading plan. I have a piece of paper and I kind of check off. We don't want it to be legalistic and check off religion. Because listen, this is what I'm saying. I believe that Christians ought to be in the Lord's house every week with God's people. I believe in that. It is so important. I couldn't imagine trying to live the Christian life and not regularly meeting with God's people. That is not at all what is commanded or exampled in the New Testament. All people who were followers of Christ, you find them in the New Testament connected with a body of believers and being faithful to that and being called to be faithful to that. Now, that being said, I'm going to go one further. More important than that is your own personal daily time spent in the Word of God. That is very important for you to learn to digest God's Word and let Him speak to you and go through it systematically. Go through it systematically. we got three options for you, and I'm not putting one above the other. They're all great. There's an option back there if you just want to start in Genesis and read all the way through uh, to Revelation in the year 2022. Today's the first, January 1st. Um, there's that option, and there's some like videos you can go on over in a column, and you could look that up, and it will give you helps for what you're reading along the way. Then there's a chronological plan, which may be a superior to plan to that. and it'll, You just have to read it and look at it, and it'll work your way through, and you will see the, the story as it unfolds through the Word of God. And it's not exactly going to unfold in the order that the books of the Bible have it before us. So that's a tremendous reading plan. Or you say, Jeff, I feel like the Lord would have me to read just the New Testament this year. Then there is a plan back there. It is one chapter per day. Monday through Friday, you have the weekends to catch up or to revisit anything that the Lord has for you. So it is five days a week, one chapter a day. I believe it starts in the book of Mark uh, tomorrow. So today's January 1st, but the first week, the Monday starts tomorrow. And it will have you in Mark chapter 1, one chapter a day, five days a week. Uh, and that is a tremendous plan as well. It's mostly about how, how spend as much time in God's Word as He needs to feed your soul. So it isn't about just conquering. Uh, maybe the Lord's not leading you to read all of his word this, this year. And that's fine. He may be leading you to read only the New Testament. All right. Hebrews chapter 2. So uh, because we do a cantata each year, um, I've been here uh, six, over six years now. And is this my seventh? I guess this is my seventh. Is that right? 
sixth or seventh Christmas. And so because we do a cantata and then later on we have Christmas itself, I generally preach two Christmas messages a year. And the most difficult part of that, and one of the most difficult things, is what passage am I going to use? And so today's passage I have actually alluded to multiple times over the last few years, but I've never actually like dug in and studied it and done a whole message on it like we're going to do this morning, and it's five verses in Hebrews chapter 2. So real quick, let me give you some context. We're always going to give context. What's the title? Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews, just a brief, brief overview, the simplest way I know how to say it. It's a book that was written somewhere, apparently just before A.D. 70, because the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. And it's written apparently somewhere in the 60s, that primarily written to Jews who are no longer trusting in the sacrifices that were in the temple that were still going on at that time. They weren't trusting that anymore because they'd put their faith and trust in Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. And they'd moved from Judaism to Christianity. And so this book is calling them that when difficulty comes and persecution comes, don't forsake Christianity and following the Lord Jesus to try to go back to the old way of Judaism because Christ is superior in every way. So that's the main brief overview of the book of Hebrews. So the immediate context of chapter 2, right before what we're about to read, is this. All true Christians... Now act like you haven't heard this before. Hear this as if you haven't heard it before. All true Christians are the adopted children of God. That's the immediate context. All true Christians... So if you're a Christian, and there's many of us in here this morning, you are, a, you are a, an adopted child of God. We are God's children. But along with that, here's the context, the one and only Son of God by nature is not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. So let that sink in. We're the adopted children of God. Jesus is the one and only Son of God by nature. He's not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters because we're all the children of God. Well-to-do families, the, the, the members of families who are well-to-do are usually a little embarrassed of the poor people in the family. Just call it like it is, a little bit ashamed of them. But Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. And that's a massive thought. Instead of saying they lack, he just shares all of his wealth with us when we were lacking. So there's our context. So it's about us being children of God. And with that thought, now remember, when we read the word children, it's not talking about all of mankind. It's talking about those who put their faith in Christ, who become the children of God. Verse 14, let's read down to the end of the chapter. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. Pause. Since the children, that's those of us who are saved, born again, we all share. By nature, we share flesh and blood. There's a lot of flesh and blood in this room, right? Since, therefore, the children, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Quick question, see if you're paying attention. What is, what are the same things? The same things are? Flesh and blood. Go back to the first part of the verse. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, insert by nature, we have flesh and blood. 
He himself likewise partook of the same things. Partook means he was not by nature flesh and blood, but took of that, partook of that. And this happened 2,000 years ago. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Why did he do this? Read the whole verse again. Here we go. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And, so obviously we're going to come back to that point, but there'll be another thought. And, why did he do it? And deliver all those who through fear of death, which we just sang about in the last song, third verse in that I believe. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So now we know why he partakes of this flesh and blood. Verse 16, in a moment I'm going to kind of introduce one section with a quick thought out of verse 16, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, so get it as we're passing. It's the middle verse. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. By the way, that does not mean that only Jews get saved. Obviously, he's talking about Christ became the offspring of Abraham so that he could help and, and save the offspring of Abraham. And that means a specific thing that Lord willing will finish. That will be our last thought of the day. Verse 17. Therefore, now think back to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's the incarnation, the Son of God becoming man. Verse 17, words the same thing, slightly different. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. And my job this morning, especially in the first point, I want to get across is the next three words. Because I've been revisiting this. I, I hope I've learned something new this, this Christmas season. And it's, Lord willing, more, but not exhaustively, more of these next three words. Here's verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful... And faithful high priest in the service of God. So he has to become like us in every way, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful high priest in the service of God and a faithful high priest. Literally, we sang this same doctrine just a while ago. I don't know if you caught it. There's this hill, and these two things embraced. Two things had to embrace. Well, we just read it right there in verse 17. But now read verse 17 again. I'm going to go all the way to the end of verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself, so here's kind of a takeaway, a doctrinal statement for us, an action step. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I should feel a natural action step because he suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those of us who are being tempted. So what should I do? I should run to him for help. 
We begin back in verse number 16, a thought out of there. So there's a God, right? God is the creator. Let's go back. Let's take a big picture. God is the creator, made all things. And, but we're going to focus on our planet particularly. He made all the animals. He created all the animals, all the fish, all the birds, all the insects, all the plants. You name it. All the life forms. God created that. But watch. Over all of those things, and there is an order, and God would be able to, I, I can give my opinion, I won't do it right now, but I think, you know, the animals are, or would be above some of those other things. And, and, and the, again, the plants are there obviously serving these other things, so that may tell us an idea of where the plants are, though they're very important because they give us life. So they're very important. But above all of that, God places man. Mankind is over that. In fact, in the garden, God gave Adam dominion. Not physically, but as though it were Adam has this crown placed upon him. He's crowned with glory and honor. Mankind has been given this dominion and authority over all the things of the earth. So there's all those things that were created. Then there's man. But, help me out, what is above mankind? What's above mankind? According to Psalms and Hebrews. Help me. The angels. So there's God, the creator, in his own category, way above. And then there's the angels, and then there's mankind, and then there's all this other creation. But what is strange is God gives mankind authority that he doesn't give to the angels. Why does he do that? They don't have authority over the planet. Mankind is given this. Mankind sins in the, in the garden and gives up that authority, and now it's marred and wrecked, and it's in a fallen state. But mankind had this, and I'm going to propose to you, is going to be restored again because of Christ. And that, again, is going back to the earlier part of chapter number 2. So here's the thought of verse 16. 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God did not step way, 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 way down and become an angel to save the angels. Though one-third of the angels are doomed for destruction, they will not be saved. Instead, he stepped even further down to become a man to save mankind. Write this thought. Jesus' humanity, that Christ became genuinely human and yet remained God at the same time, is absolutely crucial to our salvation. And that's the thought that I want to get across this morning. As verse 17 said, in every respect, he became like his brothers in every respect. He became a man. That he became human and yet remained God, that combination is absolutely crucial to our salvation. From the time of Christ's conception, and again, I'm going to the conception, not the birth, Jesus displayed all the signs of genuine humanity. And we could, go, we could spend the whole message just talking about ways that prove Jesus was human. So I want to get your help for a moment. John chapter 4, there's a Samaritan woman who sees Jesus. What did she see? Now be specific. Be specific as you can be. She saw a what? Three letters. Saw a man, but she saw a, a Jew. So what is, here's this person who shows all the signs of genuine humanity. This woman gives her commentary. She saw not just a human being, but a man that is a Jew. So he became a man, a genuine human. There's, later on in the Gospels, he's in a boat. 
And there's at least 12 other people in the boat. And these 12 people who are experienced seamen, they're out on the Sea of Galilee. They are convinced that the storm they are in is so bad. And the boat is taking on so much water. They are absolutely certain their boat is going to be sunk and they will die that day. But Jesus is sleeping. Why? Because Jesus is exhausted. He's totally exhausted because he had just done so much ministry in Capernaum. Now he's asleep because he's a man. When he's hanging on the cross, he's thirsty because human beings who are crucified get thirsty on a cross. He bleeds because humans who are crucified bleed. Some people would not like this. Some doctrines, some religions would not like what I'm about to say, but it's absolutely true. And if you need to change your doctrine, you need to update it. When Mary gave birth to Jesus on that first Christmas day, she was a virgin giving birth to her firstborn son. You can put two and two together and figure it out. When she gave birth to Jesus, she had all the natural birth pains that every mother would have. So this idea that she had a halo over her and Jesus had a halo over him and, and Jesus just kind of slipped out pain-free, that is nonsense. Jesus became like us in every respect. And this woman who needed a Savior, who was a sinner, she's wailing and screaming and in anguish giving birth. No, I don't like to picture that. Well, this is what the Bible's teaching us. He became like us in every respect. Every respect. So now they have a little baby. It's the God-man. When he gets hungry as a little baby for months and months, what does he do? When he gets tired as a little baby for months and months, what does he do? He cries. I don't agree with the line in the, little, in, the, in the Christmas carol, no crying he makes. I just don't believe that. And you may say, no, Jesus didn't cry. What did he do? Go. Or did he go. I mean, come on. All babies, when they get tired, they get fussy. So Jesus cried when he was tired and when he was hungry. He spit his food up. He coughed, he sneezed, and whatever they used to make a diaper for the Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh, they had to change that diaper because his digestive system was just like yours. He became like us in every way. Let's notice two thoughts this morning, why he did this. Let's start with the end of the text, and we'll finish at the beginning of the text. Let's notice two thoughts. Number one, becoming man allows Jesus... To relate. Becoming man allows Jesus to relate. He can relate. Look again, if you would, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He can relate. Now, I'm going to pause, and you'll see this in a few minutes when we look over in chapter 4 for a brief moment. I'm not going to do it now, but I want to propose to you, and you guys should already be there. If you're a seasoned, if you've been a Christian for a while, you should know the answer to this. But I'm looking for specific two-word answer. The one we know, but I want to expand that thought. Jesus, when he became a man, became like us, his brothers and sisters, in every single respect... With one exception that's not mentioned in chapter 2, but is mentioned in chapter 4. What is that one exception? It is, he did not have our what? Sin. All right? And some of you threw another word behind sin, but I'm going to even 
dial it in and focus just a little more. I want to offer to you that Jesus did not have original sin. He had no original sin. Again, let's do a big flyover. You ready? Let's get some good doctrine. What is original sin? Original sin is what every human being who's ever been born is born with. Except Jesus. That's the one exception. In every respect, obviously excludes original sin. So how do we arrive at that? Watch. God created Adam. And when he created Adam, he created all human beings in Adam. You were created in Adam back at the start of creation. I wasn't created in 1969, born in January 1970. I was made in 1969, born in January 1970. Watch. God created Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed into him the breath of life. So Adam was created. No original sin. He did not have original sin. Eve, God, puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib from his side, doesn't create Eve, makes Eve, because Eve's already been created when Adam was created, but makes Eve from his side, and now she is made and breathes life into her. And now she is alive and has no original sin. Notice, he's created, she's created in him, she's made from him, neither one have original sin, but then she gets deceived by Satan, commits sin, so now she has her own original sin, but Adam, following his wife's lead, ends up intentionally choosing sin, sins on purpose, falls into sin with his, with his wife, and now because of his sin, when those two come together in the act of marriage, all their children who are now born, neither one of them are born, but we're all born, and because not of Eve, but because of Adam's sin, we're all born with Adam's sin nature. We're born with the original sin stamped upon our being and upon our nature, but Christ did not have that. How? Write this thought down. Jesus' avoidance of original sin is tied directly to his completely unique, mysterious, and very miraculous conception within Mary by the Holy Spirit. That's the key. We got our sin nature from our forefather, not our foremother. And so Christ, yes, he has an earthly mother, but he does not have a biological father on earth. This is seen in Matthew chapter 1. As you're writing that note, Matthew 1, talking about Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1, verse number 35. And the angel, talking to her, answered Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You say, how did this happen, this unique conception? This is what happened. This is all we know. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so Jesus has been made like us in every respect except for original sin. And now, let's dig a little deeper. Why? So they can relate. I want you to walk away this morning thinking, Jesus really does relate with us. Barclay writes it this way. He says, quote, it is impossible, and let this sink in. I was actually thinking about it. Is Jocelyn back in here? Is Jocelyn in here? Is she with the kids? She's with the kids. She was so comfortable up here a while ago. 
Barclay writes, It is almost impossible to understand another person's sorrows and sufferings unless we have been through them. Why did Jesus become a human being? Barclay is on to it. He says, It is almost impossible to understand another person's sorrows and sufferings unless we have been through them. You say, what does I have to do with Jocelyn? Watch. He gives a lot of examples, but I pulled out two. He writes, a person without a trace of nerves has no conception of the tortures of nervousness. I, one of my main fears, y'all have heard me say over and over, is public speaking. Public speaking, the one that is probably above the heights is right there. I'm telling you, I'll get tore out of the frame. You put me on a high place. Um, I, I, I'm very shaky, very nervous. Don't be cutting up. Don't get on. The, I, I may ride the Ferris wheel, but if you start doing that rock and junk, we're not friends anymore. I mean, I, that's <laughs> no, no. I'm about to punch you. Yeah, you better stop. Like this isn't funny. But public speaking, worse than public speaking for me is singing. I re- Literally, there have been times Deanna and I would be singing, especially if I had a solo part in it. And it was like, if you were to give me a choice, you could go back and your dad could give you a good old-fashioned whipping as a child, or you could go up and sing this song. Give me the whipping. I'm telling you, I hate, I, please. I mean, it just affects, I just, I'm about to go into lockdown. But there's some of you, you come up here, we could put a microphone in your hand, and you would just, hey, hey, how's it going? Good You'd just be as comfortable. And there's others of you, you're like me. If we brought you up right now and said, hey, talk about this, uh, you'd, you'd put the microphone down here or you'd aim it out there and you'd mumble and you'd just be like, please don't do that. The one group cannot relate to the other. You don't know what we're going through. He continues. A person who's perfectly physically fit has no conception of the pain of the person for, for whom life is never free of pain. Before we can have sympathy, we must go through the same things as the other person has gone through. And that is precisely what Jesus did. If you wake up pain-free, you sleep well at night, and you just get up and go do, your, do the business of your day and all this physical activity, you never think a thing about it, there are people in this room who have to plan on pain being in their life. And you don't know how they're living. I think of, there are some of you, you've had kidney stones. You can relate with each other. I cannot relate with you. Some of you have given birth to children. Some of you ladies. I can't relate. I can make jokes, but I cannot relate. You're on your own. You have each other. You have that in common. I've never had a migraine. I can't, I've never had a migraine. I cannot. Some of you are like, really? Never? Be glad. I know. I take your word for it. I promise. I don't want one. I don't want to relate with you. I could try to empathize and sympathize from over here. But some of you, those that have that, you know what each other, I mean, where it's, you just got to, I mean, you just, you'll do anything to get rid of that. I've never had that. Why did Christ become a man? Think of it this way. Nothing can hurt God. No one can hurt God unless he allows it. Mankind came along and sinned. All God had to do was cut us off and distance himself from us, and there would be no pain involved. But instead, God drew closer to us, becoming one of us, and made himself absolutely vulnerable to all the things that we go through. This is what Christ has done to relate with us. We could go on and on. I want to share a few thoughts. The Lord's body had all the same exact nervous systems that ours have. 
so that he could feel all the same pain and agony. I mean, literally, all the pressure points. Nine days ago, as we left North Carolina for Christmas to see my family on a Friday night, it was two degrees, and a couple hours later, it was going to get down to zero, right? The Lord put himself in a position to be in a body where he felt cold and extreme hot. He put himself in a position to feel all the pain that we feel, all the agony, all the delight, all the physical joys that we feel, all the physical, get it, all the physical joys. He put himself in a position to have body odor and wouldn't even know it. But if you were to go back, you would know it. He was a real human being. He put himself in a position because he did manual labor where he had blisters and sore muscles and backaches. The Almighty who created all things, who holds all things in existence, has a sore back because he did something new or he overdid it or he pulled a muscle. He said, that's not how I like to. He got sick occasionally. This past Wednesday night, I lay down for a minute, fell asleep on the couch for probably about an hour, woke up. I had a sinus pressure right here. I had a sore throat and I had a cough. I went to bed thinking, man, I am getting the trifecta. This is going to be terrible. By like noon the next day, it was gone. I have never had one leave so fast as that. And I may have like the remnant of a cough slightly, but it was like the weirdest thing. Took a COVID test just to make sure like what in the world? It was negative. I'm here today. Jesus got sick. I believe there were days he was just like, yeah. You say, I don't think of him that way. In every respect, like us, he no doubt, no doubt, Found some of the girls, as he's growing up, more attractive. And some personalities more attractive. And I even allowed, allowed myself, probably late to the party, no doubt late to the party, I even allowed myself this year to envision Christ, no doubt, was flirtatious with some little girls as he was growing up. Jesus would have been flirtatious because she's pretty. And you may be like, that is not blasphemy. That is humanity. He became a human being. He goes out into the wilderness, and this is very mysterious. He gets, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in a unique way after his baptism. And the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. He doesn't eat for 40 days. He has all the urges that your body has. If you've ever had a physical urge, you've never had one more than he was having for food after 40 days. And so Christ has this in him. And Satan comes along and says, you have the power to make those stones. Just turn them into bread. You can make butter, no doubt. The best bread you've ever had, bread and butter. I mean, you haven't eaten for 40 days? Just do it. But that wasn't God's will. And so the Lord fought off that temptation. He takes him up to a high place on the temple that would be hundreds of feet if he were to fall off. He tells him, just jump. You know good and well those angels over there have a command. They are not to let your foot dash against the stone. They will stop you from hitting. Just jump. And that is true, but it wasn't God's will. Oh, it would make a nice story and a great entrance, and everybody would adore and make much of Jesus if he were to do that and land softly. Everybody would see it, but that's not God's plan. Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and promises, I will give you these kingdoms. All you have to do is fall down and worship me. Every human being is enticed by possessions. This was enticing, but it wasn't God's plan. And so Jesus rejected and fought off the temptation. We preached on that years ago in Matthew chapter 4. And I want to give you two quick points from that, that message that day. Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness proved at least two things. Write these down. Number one, it proved that Jesus genuinely was human and sinless at the same time. He is human. He was being tempted by sin. And yet he was sinless. 
There is a mystery in there that our little brains, especially mine, cannot even begin to fathom what is happening there. But this is a fact, and we'll look at it right after these two thoughts. He is tempted. Let that sink in. Here's the God-man. He's God and man. Let this sink in. God cannot be enticed with evil. God absolutely abhors and hates evil. Jesus is God. But mankind is tempted by sin. We are tempted by sin. Jesus is a man who was tempted by sin. As God, he repulses sin, hates it. But as man, he was being tempted by it. That bread, he was wanting it, though that wasn't God's way at that time. Those kingdoms look great. Again, everybody wants possessions. Everybody loves to be made much of and have people adore them. So, yeah, that would have been a temptation to just launch off the temple. But it wasn't God's plan. It's a big debate. We know he chose not to sin. Could he have? I mean, really? Could he have sinned? Was it at risk? I won't go into that again. Good people disagree. The second thing that what Jesus' temptation taught us is this. Being tempted is not in itself sinful. Being tempted is not sinful. Christ was absolutely tempted in every way as we are. And that wasn't sin to be tempted. You say, when does it become sin? All I could say is, and I don't know the exact moment, but it's, it's the second thought. It's not the first thought that comes out of nowhere that you didn't go looking for. It came to you. There it is. It presents itself. That's not sin. It's enticing. It's when you give it another look, another thought, a second thought. It's when you allow it into your heart, into your mind to stay. It's when you start allowing it to creep over into your will. All of a sudden, now you have crossed the line over into sin. Jesus has never done that. Flip the page. You're in Hebrews 2. Flip over to chapter 4. Look at the last three verses in Hebrews 4. Verse number 14. Here, here goes the writer again of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest. Ours is way better than the, the ones they had in Jerusalem. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Our high priest is Jesus, and oh, by the way, he's the Son of God, so he gives us an action step. Let us hold fast our confession. Hey, Hebrews, Jews, Christians, because our high priest is seated in the heavens, already there, hold fast. Don't turn back to the old way. No matter how tough it gets and how hard persecution comes, you hold on and you just hold fast to your faith because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Now look at verse 15. It's the main thought here. For we, hear this grace view, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus entered humanity and he felt our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the only difference. He felt all the same categories and types of sin that we have, all those same temptations, yet he never gave in to them, yet without sin. So what's the action step? Let us then with confidence, because he's our high priest. He relates with us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go to him. Take advantage of that. Based off of this, I want to invite you to write this thought. and You go home and chew on this because it should add to your appreciation of what Christ has done for us. Jesus, now hear it. Really understand this. Jesus was tempted in every way you are. 
in every way, but worse. But worse. Jesus was tempted worse than you have been tempted. You say, how is that possible? MacArthur writes the following. He says, most of us, now let this thought sink in. You say, how could he be tempted worse? He's God. I think MacArthur's on to something. He says, most of us never know the full degree of resistible temptation. Simply because we usually succumb long before that degree is reached. Does that make sense? Let me read it again as you're writing it. Most of us never know the full degree of resistance. Here comes a temptation. God's not going to put more on us than we can handle. When we give in to sin is because we quit. We didn't resist like we could in the power of the Holy Spirit. We gave in. We didn't have to. But we never get to the full force of resistible temptation, he writes, simply because we usually succumb long before that degree is reached. Christ never succumbed to temptation. So the temptation, no doubt, would build and build and build, and yet he never gave in. He's feeling the full force of his humanity being pulled upon by the world, by Satan, by his own flesh and its urges and its desires. He has all the same urges and appetites that you and I have. The other day I started a list, and then I had to just stop because I realized it was going to turn into a monstrosity. So I'll, I'll give you the brief version. And you'll probably relate to at least one of these. Common temptations, common to us, common temptations spring from things like loneliness. There's loneliness in this room. There's loneliness Somebody right now is watching this online and their life has... With loneliness, there's temptation that goes with that. Temptation to sin. There is temptation to sin that is affiliated often with difficult people. I know none of you have anybody difficult in your life, so be glad. If you had difficult people in your life, they can tempt you to sin in various ways. There's sexual temptation. Money problems can cause a certain category of temptation. Coveting what's not God's will for us to have has its own category of temptation. Get this one. Giving in to bodily appetites, things that we didn't ask to have, but they are part of humanity. We have appetites. Eyes, our ears, our taste, our touch, our smell. We have appetites, and sometimes things are, are temptations to sin. There's godly Godly satisfaction of appetites, and then there's ungodly satisfaction of appetites, and those, those can be cross over in that line. Sometimes we have a temptation to give in to bodily appetites too early. Too early. Watch these four categories. We give bodily appetites. We could, we're tempted to give in too early, too excessively, in a forbidden way, or in an idolatrous way. We take sex. That's a natural urge. But many people partake of that too early. There's partaking of natural urges excessively. We think about food and drink. That's normal, but we do it excessively or in a forbidden way. I want to feel a certain way, and that over there will do it for me. I'm going to go buy it. Oh, but it's against the law to use that to, to, for that purpose. But we want to do it, and it's a temptation or in an idolatrous way. I want to feel good. I want to feel joy, even temporarily. And rather than running to the Lord for my joy, again, I'm going to run to this forbidden, against the law way, or this excessive way, or this too early way. And then there's also 
the whole category of when the will of God is very clearly going to cost us to have pain and loss. And we get anxiety over that. Here's my point. Everything I just read, Jesus experienced. And that list could go on and on. Christ was never drunk. He was never a glutton. He was never lustful, never covetous, never anxious in a simple way. And the list could go on and on. So I finished the, sec- the first point with this thought. How have you, how have you been tempted? How are you struggling in your walk with, with, with the Lord and in this world and in that body of yours? What do you struggle with? Just know this. Write it down. One of the reasons, in part, in part, one of the reasons Christ became a man is that so he could experience every category, every kind of temptation that we have. And so that he could sympathize with us and help us. That's what verse number 18 gives us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Able to help is this idea of he's not only able to help you, he is willing, he's ready. The Lord, it's, it's as though the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, I know what you're going through. I know what weakness feels like. I know how strong that temptation is. Run to me. And I'll help you. I'm, I'm willing. I'm ready. And I'm able to help you. I can relate with you. Maybe it's as simple as this. If you go home and say, I'm struggling with this, just take it literally to the Lord Jesus. We pray normally to the Father, but this is a time you'd pray to the Lord Jesus. Jesus, I know I win the war. I know I win the war. But I'm losing the battle sometimes down here. And you never lost the battle. Will you help me? Help me. Show me how to win every battle like you won. And I'm looking to you for help. He is able to help those. Because he also suffered when being tempted. Now let's go back to the start of the passage. And let's notice secondly this morning. Becoming a man. Why Christmas? What's the point of the incarnation? And this is the primary one. Becoming a man allowed Jesus to die. Becoming a man allowed Jesus to die. And we notice three thoughts under that. Look back at verse number 14, if you would. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, by nature we have that, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So let's pause right there. Is that confusing? What does that mean? Well, it means the devil has the power of death. What does that mean? Does that mean that Satan has the power to walk around and... No. How do we know that? Whatever this means, how do we know it doesn't mean he can go around killing whoever he wants? How do we know that? Practically and just logically. Because if he had that power, you would be dead. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 teaches us that he can only do what God permits. So then what does this mean? The best I can offer, and I forget where the thought came in. I don't know if it was mine or someone else. The best I can offer you what this means is that Satan has the power to influence what causes death. He can influence what causes death. What causes death? Sin. 
So he can influence sin, which causes death. But he can only do what God permits. So now let's write this down based on verse 14 again. Why did he partake of the same things of flesh and blood? That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So number one, to destroy the devil. He partook of flesh to destroy the devil. Write that quickly because I'm going to go on to the next thought. The primary, a while ago we worded it this way. Christ became man in part so that he can relate with us. That's part of the reason. But the primary reason, the main reason Christ became a man is because as God, let's go back in eternity past, here's the Son of God who's anointed to be the Christ. And when he's born as a human being, his human name is Jesus. Why does he have to become a human being? Because as God, he cannot die. God cannot die. So he must become a man so that he can die. And by dying, he actually has this face-off with Satan himself. And he takes Satan's favorite weapon, rips it from him, uses it on himself as a way to defeat Satan. Christ became a man to use death to defeat death and Satan who had the power of death. He did this... I thought of it this way, and that's our next note. Go ahead and write that, write that down. He became a human primarily because as God, he couldn't die. But as a man, he could use death. He could allow himself to die, and he did it on purpose. I was thinking of it this way. If you were to go to the south side of Main Street in Anderson, and you're going to drive all the way to Highway 85, where Main Street's going to become Clemson Boulevard, and you're going to go all the way down to exit 19. How many red lights are there? I don't know. There's a lot. And there's lots of traffic almost always. Could you imagine, and most of you know where I'm going. You know this, that scene. You're going from South Anderson headed toward exit 19. What if you're driving along and, along and you're going the speed limit, and literally as you come up, there's traffic... But people just move out of your way, and every red light just turns green, one after another after another, so that you never stop all the way through. You say, that would kind of be a miraculous thing. I believe Satan, the week of the Lord's passion, he really thinks he's winning. He thinks he's defeating the Lord. All the usual stop signs are, stop, are, are not there anymore. It's like all these green lights. He enters into, into uh, uh, Judas's body. And he uses him and he stirs up the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders to hate Christ and to persecute Christ and to arrest him and to put him on a corrupt trial and reach this corrupt verdict and send him over to Pilate and just harass Pilate who wanted to let him go free. But they will take, and Satan just keeps on and on and on. And actually, he's being beaten and he is actually crucified. And then he dies and he thinks he really has won. But the whole time, he's only fulfilling the plan of God. God's perfect plan is being played out. And Satan is playing right into the hand of God because Christ is using Satan's weapon of death to defeat death and Satan. Second thought. Why did he become man? So that he could die. Why is that important? The next thought comes down out of verse number 17. So he could die as a propitiation for sin. He died as a propitiation for sin. And we don't want to get too theological here but I, I realize right now in this room there's probably I'm going to take a guess 15% of you that know what propitiation is and probably 85% that don't and I won't have you raise your hand but just if you're sitting there and you say I have no clue what propitiation means 
or if you say, I do. Either way, let's study it just for a moment. You ready? Let's study it. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like, why? Why why Christmas? Why the incarnation? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Watch. We love the mercy of God where he doesn't give us what we deserve and he bestows loving kindness on us. We love the mercy of God. We value it greatly. But God is a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, mercy, we love the mercy. Mercy has to be based on something. Has to be based on something. God can't just say, hey, those that sin and break my laws, you're going to die. You're going to be punished. Oh, we all break his law. We're all born in sin. And then we commit our own acts of sin. Well, I'm just going to give mercy and mercy and more mercy. No, he can't do that. That's not justice. We love the mercy, but it has to be based upon something. And what is it based on? It's based on propitiation. Let's write this thought down from Michael Kruger. He writes, propitiation is a specific word, which means that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath. Against sin. It, propitiation, appeases God. Now, thankfully, you at Graceview are conditioned to sentences like what you've just written. Do you, do you not, like for real, no joke. Do y'all realize that most churches in America, most churches in America, if that sentence were really delved into that preacher would, would have so many phone calls after it's over. He'd, he'd be in trouble. Like, what is this? Read it again. Propitiation is a specific word, which means that Jesus' death, yes, we know about Jesus' death, satisfies God's wrath against sin. It appeases God. There are people, Christians, who don't like to think of God as needing appease. They've got to appease my kids. Got to appease my wife or my husband or my boss. God doesn't need appease. You're making him sound like wrath. Wrath. I don't think of God as a loving God. I don't think of God as a wrathful God. Well, you need to update your theology. God is angry every day at sin. God hates sin. J.I. Packer says we are prone to regard sin lightly. We gloss over sin's hideousness, but God doesn't. God hates every act of sin, and he is wrathful toward it. I thought I was going to be preaching this last week. I envisioned the visitor coming to Graceview on Christmas morning. And I could just think in their mind, because they think Christmas is mainly about camels and cows and donkeys in a little makeshift stall. I thought I was going to hear a nice little story about camels and cows and donkeys. And this guy's up there talking about, and honestly, I could picture them going so far in their heart as to think, this is inappropriate. This is not right. This is Christmas Day. You don't do that on Christmas Day. This guy's wacko. But I want you to write this down. God's wrath against sin is a major aspect of Scripture and of Christmas. It's the context of Christmas. Why Christmas? Because Jesus had to become a man to die to appease the wrath of God. You see, I still don't like to think about the wrath of God. I just don't think of God as wrathful. As soon as you've written that, flip over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Romans 1, 18. 
For the wrath of God is. For the wrath of God is revealed. And it's revealed in many, many ways. But Paul writes to the Roman church. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So as we sin, we're suppressing the truth. But God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. He hates it and he has wrath for it. You need to picture God as being wrathful over sin. Flip over to chapter 2, Romans 2. Look at verse number 5. Now watch it. Here we go. But because of your hard and impenitent heart... Because, Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He, in verse 6, I'm going to read it. He will render to each one according to his works. Let me read it again. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judge, righteous judgment will be revealed. It will be revealed. Quick, quick background what that means. If you were to go back and read verses 1 through 4, here's what it means. If you have ever one time in your life seen someone else doing something that you even thought, maybe you didn't even say it, but you thought, that's wrong. If you have ever looked at anyone else and thought what they are doing or being, saying, whatever it is, or not doing, that's wrong. Then that shows, and by the way, what they're doing is wrong. That shows you know what wrong looks like. And so you should be able to spot the wrong in your own life. And seeing all the wrong in your own life, if that has never caused you to run to God and to beg Him and to have a soft heart, not a hard heart, but beg God, please, I'm coming repentantly. Would you please forgive me of all of my sin? I don't have any business looking down at them. God, I've sinned. Please forgive me. If you have never done that, the Bible says, because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It is building up. And you're going to be in the way of it. It's coming. Have you done that? You can spot it in others. Have you ever talked to God about your sin? 2 Thessalonians. One more. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This context is when the Lord comes back. When Jesus comes back, how will he come back? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll lead up by reading the previous phrase. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, here it comes, verse 8, in flaming fire. So what's the second coming going to look like? At the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes down and there's all this sin on the earth, how will he come? In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on, two, on a person that fits two categories. Here it is. You ought to check yourself this morning. I'm not saying this. The Bible is saying this is going to happen. When he comes, he will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Doesn't mean they're going to be destroyed once and for all and it's going to last for eternity. They will throughout eternity be being destroyed. Destruct, eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hear it one more time. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Answer this question. Do you know God? I'm not asking do you know about God. Some facts. 
Do you have a relationship with God? If you do not, this is coming. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus became your propitiation, died on the cross, took all of God's wrath like a big sponge, soaked up all the wrath of God for your sins. He soaked it up. But to access that, you have to ask him to save you and trust that he will. Do you know God? Do you have a relationship with him through that? Have you obeyed the gospel? Because the gospel says if you'll trust him, you'll be saved. But if you only hear that and never do the trusting, then you're going to have this vengeance poured out on you. Packer writes the following. So as we come down the home stretch, what is this propitiation? So we have Kruger's definition. And actually watch, it's actually two things together. So propitiation contains two things. J.I. Packer writes the following. And by the way, you might not have heard this first word. It's okay. We're going to learn it this morning. He writes, quote, expiation, expiation is an action that denotes, now pay attention, the covering, the putting away, or the rubbing out of sin so that it no longer constitutes a barrier to friendly fellowship between man and God. That's what? That's expiation. Here we go again. Expiation is an action that denotes the covering. That's not what Jesus did. This is just a general definition. The putting away. That's what Jesus did. And the rubbing out of sin. Christ rubbed out all the sin accounts against us. His blood washed it all out. His death on the cross removed and put away our sins. Here's what expiation is. It denotes the covering, putting away or rubbing out of sin so that it, sin, no longer constitutes a barrier to friendly fellowship between man and God. You say, what does that have to do with propitiation? Pay attention. Propitiation, however, in the Bible, Packer writes, denotes all that expiation means. So it's all that expiation means and the pacifying of the wrath of God. So do you see the two things? Christ's death on the cross, in essence, has, in this context, two parts. Christ takes all the sin of the world on him on the cross, and by doing so, his blood washes it away and removes it. So it's not a barrier to us and God. But also, his death does the other thing as well. It satisfies and appeases the wrath of God. It's, it's, here's what Christ did. Father, I'm going to remove sin. But I know your wrath has to be satisfied as well. So when I take sin upon myself, you pour all your wrath for that sin out on me. And those who end up putting their faith and trust in me, then they'll receive salvation and they'll receive none of your wrath. That's what Christ did. I remember preaching months ago about the Garden of Gethsemane and it blew my mind. And that week it it hit me like it still hasn't hit me since. But because God is a God of justice, God's a God of justice and equality, that means that what Jesus did on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against my sin had to be the equivalent. It's got to be equal. It had to be the equivalent of what I would have received had I received God's wrath for my sin myself. And here's what we know. Y'all remember the What's the payment for just my sin? 
My sin alone, the payment, the cost of my sin alone is that I would have to spend eternity in the torments of hell. I would spend, to pay for my sin in God's courtroom, to me, I'll just be honest, sounds like a lot. Sounds out of balance, but I don't make the rules. God makes the rules. He says, the payment for my sin alone, I would have to spend eternity, I mean, just on and on and on and on in hell for just my sin. Christ paid that somehow in six hours on the cross, but not just mine. He paid for the sins, the eternal cost of sin somehow for the 60 to 100 billion people who've ever lived. And so that's where we finish, where we began. We need to write this thought down. The propitiation that Jesus provides requires both his deity, his infinite deity, and his perfect humanity. He couldn't just be a perfect man. He has to be infinite God to pay for all the sins of all the people who've ever lived. And then that leads us to the last reason in today's text why Christ became a man. He became a man so he could die and through death defeat Satan and through his death be the propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. And the ultimate thing is the good thing there in verse number 15 to deliver mankind from sin. Everybody take a quick look. As soon as you've written that, you got your Bible open, you'll need it open to be able to answer this. I'm looking for a very important word that is mentioned three times in verses 14 and 15. A very important word, it's mentioned three times in verses 14 and 15. What word am I looking for? You spotted it? You found it? Say it. Death. Look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Mankind has always feared death. Once death started, we've always feared it. And rightly so. We ought to fear death. I thought about it this week, and I only thought of four types of people who are, who are probably in this room, four types of people who are not fearing death. Or four types of people in Anderson County who do, right now at this moment, they are not fearing death. Group number one, they're ignorant. And I'm not talking about their IQ. I mean, they don't know what we just talked about, how eternal destruction and an eternal lake of fire is awaiting them because of their sins. They've rejected Christ. They are ignorant of what's coming, so they're not afraid of death. Group number two is foolish, and it's these idiots. Sorry, it's these idiots. I'm not afraid to die, but they're, they know they're not yet a Christian, and they know what the Bible says, and they kind of brag how they're not afraid. And I'll just go to hell and I'll have a big party with all my friends. Okay, those are idiots and they're foolish people. I'm sorry, but they are. That's the truth. So you have those that are ignorant you have those that are foolish. Now here's the third group that is not afraid of death in Anderson County. It's the forgetful. They're just not remembering. They've heard about what's coming, but they've got so busy in life they are not currently thinking about what's coming. And then the fourth group that's not afraid of death is those who are trusting Christ. So you got the ignorant you got the foolish, you got the forgetful, which is most people, but you got this whole other group. They're not afraid of death because they've trusted Christ. Look at verse 15 one more time. He delivers, his goal is to deliver by his death and propitiation, his defeat of Satan, using death against Satan, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I remember when verse 15 happened in my life. For me, it was 1975. It was June 1975. I didn't know the date. I had to text my sister yesterday. My sister's older than me. She remembered it well. 
You say, what's significant about June? On June 25th, 1975, my, my granddaddy, that was his name, he was up in Virginia visiting his sister. At that time, all four of my grandparents were still alive. So from age 5 to age 16, I'm going to lose all four of my grandparents. This was the first one. It was my favorite. Easily my favorite grandparent was my granddaddy. I mean, you buy me and my, my little friend next door chocolate milk about every day, and you buy us a candy bar every day, and you give me all your pennies, you're my favorite. And he was just kind. He was just nice. But he had a heart attack in June, 19, June 25th, 1975, and he died. And I'm not here to say that that was the day that death hit me. It wasn't that day. It was a few days later, probably still in June. I remember. I, I'm telling you, I remember this. I remember standing next to his casket, and it was open, and looking at my mother. It was her dad. She was standing there, and she was crying, and he wasn't moving. And as five years old, I was five years old, it, it hit me. And the fear of death struck me. That night, we lived in a double wide. I remember at the end of the double wide, so it's the kitchen over here, and at the far end was this bedroom, and then beside it was another bedroom. But this was the master bedroom that had the, had the bath connected to it. That was my parents, my sister was here, and me and my brother was in this one. I remember walking out, hyperventilating, five-year-old kid, death has made me afraid, and I remember thinking, my mom and dad are going to die. My favorite grandparents died. Please, I'm afraid my mom and dad. And I remember going, and there's moonlight from the two windows, and their headboard was here against this wall, and I just wanted to make sure that each of the covers were still moving. That, they didn't wake up. I was trying to be quiet. They didn't want to get in trouble, but I remember crying and just making sure because verse 15 was real to me that night. But four years later, in 1979, something else happened. I went to a Bible camp, and I heard the gospel. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior. I heard the truth. I heard what Jesus had done, what you've heard today. And I asked him to save me. And I, I didn't understand it all. In fact, for the next two to three years, I had to reassure myself that I had done that and all the ramifications of it. Here's why I'm saying that. I got saved in 1979, and then from 1982, from age 12, because of what happened in 1979 when I was nine, I have not been afraid of death since. I have not, I'm telling you, I have zero fear of death. I'm not talking about if death's over there. I'm not talking about me in this life coming up to that, seeing some pain and anxiety. I'm not talking about that. I mean the moment where life leaves this body and what happens on the other side of that, I have absolutely no fear whatsoever. It's gone. Because what Christ did has happened in my life. God became a man. He was incarnated, not just to relate with me, but to save me by dying in my place. You say, Jeff, you were worried about your parents dying. What happened there? Well, my dad's still alive. Saw him nine days ago. But 13 months ago, my mom passed away. Now listen, it was sorrowful, but not fearful. Her death, we saw it coming. We went up there on Saturday. They said, we can, do the, we can do a surgery. And if we do, she's probably going to die. She's very unlikely to make it through it. If she does, she's going to struggle for a long time and may die at any point after that. Or we cannot do the surgery, and she's going to die pretty soon. And we didn't do the surgery. And sure enough, she died the next day, November of last year. It wasn't sorrowful. I'm sorry, it was sorrowful, but not fearful. You say, why wasn't it fearful? Because my mom's a Christian. Now, here's the thing. Lots of people say, oh, they're a Christian. But my mom was like a real Christian. She had fruit and evidence in her life. Enough that it was like fear. It wasn't like, oh, no, what's going to happen to my mom after she dies? It's like joy. It's like she's getting ready to cross over, and it's going to be good. 
So this is what Christ has done. See, death threatens everybody in the world. It's going to take you away from life, and it's going to take you away from everything that is good. When in fact, if you're a Christian, write this down. Death is nothing but a door that ushers us to the eternal kind of life and everything that is best. Death lies to Christians. So if you're a true Christian and you're afraid of death, don't be. Christ has already paid the price of sin. He's already taken the penalty for your your sin, which is death. He's taken death. Death does not take you away from life and what is good. It takes you to eternal life and what is absolutely the best. That's what death does for a Christian. I'll share this with you and I'll be done. I thought of this the other day. And there'll be a, a small segment of you in here that will remember this. I thought of this old commercial. I don't know why it stood out to me just randomly. But as I was studying for this message, I was thinking about a commercial for this spray for bathroom cleaner. And the weird thing, I mean, I've not thought of this in 10 years. Easily 10 years. I saw it in the bathroom at my dad's house last Friday after I'd already thought about it. There's this spray. I didn't even know they made it anymore. It's called Scrubbing Bubbles. I thought that was just like a, a little subtitle. That's the name of this product, Scrubbing Bubbles. And I remember years and years ago, they had this commercial, and they would spray, and then they did a little animation. Some of you are like smiling because you're like, I remember those commercials. They sprayed the stuff, and out comes the foam, and it would set on like the bathroom tub, the, the floor of the tub, and it looked like little animated little saucers with like bristles on the bottom, right? And it had eyes and a mouth. Raise your hand if you remember what I'm talking about. Wow, a lot more people that I didn't know. Apparently, it wasn't that long ago, maybe. So scrubbing bubbles are sprayed out there, and they talk, and they have these little voices, right? What's the tagline? Scrubbing bubbles. We work hard, so you don't have to. We work hard. Grime, soap scum, spray us on there, and we work hard, so you don't have to. Here's your Christmas message. Jesus came and became a man and remained God so he can relate with you. But primarily so that he could go and die on a cross and have the wrath of God poured out on him as he bore your sins. And he carried away your sin. He worked hard so you don't have to. All you do is receive it. You just receive it. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Do you fear death? Be honest. I want you to answer. Don't answer out loud. Answer that question. Do you fear death? Are you afraid of death? Is there a good reason? There are people in this room right now that are afraid of dying. Not just the process leading up, but that moment when their soul and spirit leaves their body behind. Where am I going to be? There are people in this room. If they're honest, they're afraid of death. I'm going to ask you, are you afraid of death for good reason? If you're a Christian, if you've truly trusted Christ, then I want to invite you. Don't fear death. It's lying to you. Death, the day you die will be the best day of your life. promise you. Come find me when you get to heaven. If you're a true Christian, say, you're right. This is awesome. Best day of my life. But maybe you're here this morning and you fear death for good reason. It's because 
When I asked a few minutes ago, do you know God? And the answer is, I don't have a relationship with God. No, I don't know Him that way. I know about Him. I believe He exists. A while ago when I asked this, based off the Bible in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, have you ever obeyed the gospel of Jesus? Have you ever obeyed it? Because the gospel says, God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. He's worked hard so you don't have to. He's going to give salvation to you. But you have to ask for it. You have to ask for it. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to ask for it. And then you have to receive it. And know that He saved you. Know that He saved you. That's the key. Rest. Just fall back into the arms of Christ. Jesus, you have done everything so that I don't have to do anything. And I'm taking that salvation. If you've never done that. If you've never done that, I invite you right now. Would you just talk to God right where you're sitting? Say, dear Jesus. I have sinned against you. I have broken your laws. Tell him that. Confess your sins. Maybe even have specific sins in mind. Lord, you've been tempted, but you never sinned. I have sinned much. But continue talking to the Lord. Not me. Talk to him. But I believe that you loved me. I believe, I know you love me and you died for me. Tell him that. Jesus, I know and believe you died for me. And I know that your death is enough to save me. I know it's enough to save me. And so, Jesus, right now, today, on this Sunday, the first day of 2023, ask him right now, will you please save me from your sins by your shed blood on the cross? Ask Him to save you. Ask Him. Do it. And believe that He will. Know that He will. Hey, know it so much that you just go ahead and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. My last thought this morning is, is there a Christian? Don't raise your hand. Christian, I want you to just think about your life for a moment. What are you struggling with lately? What are you struggling with? Is there an area of your life you feel like you're losing the battle? I want to leave you with this thought. I promise you what you're going through, you're not the only one. You're not a freak. You're not abnormal. Others have gone through it. And I want to tell you that Jesus, he may not have been through the exact temptation, but that kind of temptation, that category, he has felt it. He knows the pull of temptation, the pull of sin. He can relate with you. And so I want to invite you this morning, take advantage of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and just run to Him for mercy. Mercy first, and then grace to help in time of need. Let's stand this morning and be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for what it stands for. Thank you that he is the best revelation of you to us. Thank you that he can truly relate and desires to aid us and runs to us, his brothers and sisters. Thank you that your son is not ashamed of us as his brothers and sisters. With all of our faults and failures, he loves us and gives us his righteousness and his glory. Even his authority, we're going to share in that. We thank you for that. Thank you that he has 
redone what Adam messed up. What Adam undone, your son has done fresh and new perfectly. But mankind, even now, above the angels, through him. Lord, I thank you that ultimately he came to save us by dying on the cross. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.